0: Hey everyone, in this episode we talk about a couple ways that you can help Houston. Just so you know, we do not talk about the way that the Houston Astros helped themselves late Thursday night when they acquired Justin Verlander from the Tigers. Typical procrastinating teams, waiting till the last minute to make moves, and we had already recorded this episode by then, so we'll talk about the Verlander deal next time. But we do have a lot lined up for today, so let's get to it. State to state, dog I got to the kids Six-packing out the driveway, dropping the weed. Y'all know we do it big, like a freight Got Full of cash where I keep the money here. Fresh to death, homie, how I came in the dope. Proud of shades on, smitten like a swing or a drone.
1: Hello and welcome
0: to episode 1104 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello.
1: Hello and welcome.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Later in this episode we are talking to Will Johnson Who is a musician and an artist He does baseball art And he has created a work of baseball art Concerning Mookie it's a, a portrait of Mookie, and he is auctioning it off now. I guess I have to specify which Mookie it is, right? It's not Mookie Betts. It's the Mets Mookie, Mookie Wilson. And he is auctioning it off now for Hurricane Harvey relief. All proceeds go to Houston, and we'll get to him in a bit. We'll get to banter first, but we are also doing a little bit of our own auctioning off or raffling off in our case for Hurricane Harvey relief. And I mentioned several episodes ago That my trusty Yeti mic, which had served me well for more than a thousand episodes of Effectively Wild and episodes of everything else, had finally kicked the bucket on my recent trip to the West Coast. I don't know exactly what's wrong with it, but it has a, a loose part or a missing part in its USB socket. Maybe it's fixable. I don't know. But I joked a bit about how maybe we could auction it off for a good cause. Turns out, in retrospect, I wasn't actually joking. We are doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And there's uh, been a lot of interest in it. I was a little self-conscious about auctioning off a (laughs) non-functioning microphone and presuming that it has value because i have spoken into it as if it's some sort of relic but there was a lot of interest it's a you know piece of sentimental memorabilia of effectively wild it's the microphone i was talking into when we got the idea for the book etc etc so we are packaging together three items that mic autographed by you me and sam as well as a new paperback copy of the only rule autographed by me and sam and an effectively wild t-shirt which we all can autograph if you want to wear our autographs i don't know if it's preferable with autographs or not so we are packaging those together and this has already begun you can go to the facebook group it's the pinned post at the top of the page if you want the details but i will quickly summarize all proceeds are going to the hurricane harvey relief fund which was started by houston mayor Sylvester Turner. It's administered by the Greater Houston Community Foundation. The minimum donation you can make on the site is $10. So $10 gets you one entry into a random drawing for these three items. If you donate increments of $10 above $10, then you get additional entries. So if you donate $30, then you get three entries into this random drawing. And the details are all there. The site is ghcf.org slash hurricane hyphen relief we will of course link to that in the blog post at fangraphs and it is linked in the facebook group so just go there donate ten dollars or some multiple of ten dollars and then forward the confirmation email that you get or a screenshot of the confirmation page to our email address podcast at fangraphs.com That is singular podcast. Some people ask if I'm saying podcast or podcasts. I am saying podcast at Fangraphs.com. And next week we will do a a random drawing with everyone who has contributed. And then we'll get all these items autographed and mailed out to the winner. And I just started this a a couple hours ago as we speak. And the donations are really already rolling in. I sound like a telethon person or something, (laughs) but they really are. People are, are actually contributing quite generously here and I'm excited about that. I'm I'm glad that my mic is, is going to some use and these other items and I hope it serves someone well as a doorstop or paperweight or just sentimental item, or maybe you can repair it and do your own podcasts with my old mic. But I'm happy and there's a, a Facebook group post by a listener named Michael Balhoff, who is in Houston and his house was flooded by Harvey. He has had to leave his house with his family and And he says that he he had to be evacuated by boat. He is looking forward to finding out what condition his house is in with some trepidation. And he posted in the Facebook group that as he was getting into the boat that was taking him away from his flooded house, all he could think to himself was such is life. (laughs) so we we applaud your attitude michael and we hope that you and your house are okay and the same goes for all of our other houston area listeners but we hope that uh, a lot of you will help out and thanks to those of you who have helped out so far
1: kind of feel a little strange signing your microphone although i guess i did speak into it once (laughs) yeah very briefly although i think that was for your other podcast Yes, that's right. A very brief Jerry DePoto (laughs) inspired segment. So we could also I suppose raffle off a screenshot of a Skype window that we could all sign (laughs) and that would maybe be a little more appropriate but whatever. Somebody gets a microphone and the other swag but a microphone Mm -hmm. to do with whatever you please. You could, as Ben said, you could in theory repair it. You could use it as a doorstop or paperweight Mm -hmm. or you could use something even more explicit. It's really up to you to do whatever you want and it was never my microphone anyway so I have no loyalty to it whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Just don't bludgeon anyone with it but other than that you're free to to do what you want. Or if it's a justified budgeting, I guess that's okay too. So you can either rewind what I just said if you want to go look up that URL to donate again, or you can go to the Facebook group, Facebook.com groups slash effectively wild. It is pinned to the top of the page, or you can go to graphs and click on the podcast post. It will be linked there too. And we will remind you in upcoming episodes, but we'll close this off next week and, and do the drawing. So if you're interested please contribute now. And uh, thanks everyone for considering it. So things that we wanted to banter about. The first thing I guess is just a, a basic baseball thing that you just wrote about. Do you want to give the one minute take on the Justin Upton trade so that we can claim
1: to be a baseball podcast that talks about current baseball events? Cameron Mabin is now an Astros player. Justin Upton is now an Angels player. Justin Upton is now not a Tigers player. No one is now a Tigers player. They got nothing. (laughs) Technically, they did get something. But the Tigers traded Justin Upton to the Angels, who sent Cameron Mabin to the Astros as a waiver claim. Anyway, Upton now will take over in left field. He will be pretty good. The Angels left fielders before were not pretty good. And even though the Angels as a team are not pretty good, they just have to be good enough. And they are, I think, a game and a half now behind the Twins. The Twins came back to win today in a fashion we will banter about next, I'm sure. But yeah, Upton is there. And as much as people have talked about, he has this opt out clause coming up and then he has four years uh, for $88.5 million under contract. After that, if he decides not to opt out, my understanding, at least my read of this is that Upton probably will still opt out. However, his value is like right on that line where it would be reasonable for him to either opt out or not. So Mm -hmm. It could depend on how he feels about the Angels, but in any case, I think the Angels did this because they're thinking about the next month or the next two months. I don't think the Angels want to have him for the next four plus years. Mm -hmm. They might. I don't know. And if they did, then it's kind of like getting a free agent early. Yeah. But I think that they just want him for the stretch run and, and they are right on that bubble where a not very good team is now going to be better with Justin Upton because he's better than Ben Revere and Eric Young and Cameron Maben, And if that's enough to put them over the hump where the hump is the Minnesota Twins, then it's <laughs> worthwhile. Yeah. Well, Angels
0: left fielders have been like one of the worst positions in baseball, right? In, in recent years, or it seems like that. There was yep. that one terrible, terrible, terrible year when, I don't know who was it, Matt Joyce was having... One of his bad years and Josh Hamilton Maybe was still there and it was truly Abysmal but that's been a a real Weak spot for a while now So that is now a strength So their playoff odds were you pointed out in your post, like 36% as you were writing that pre Upton. Do we have post Upton numbers yet? I'm uh, curious about the magnitude of this improvement here.
1: I don't know if they will have updated right now. It looks like they have not updated. Mm-hmm. So uh, look for an update tomorrow. But then tomorrow's update will include the uh, results of today's action. Right. So whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I would imagine that he'll improve the odds by maybe even 10 points, maybe that's too many, but I'm going to say five or 10 points. And meanwhile, I am buying myself some extra time so that I could run a query as I frequently do. And (laughs) I guess I need to buy a little more time, which I will do. Uh, If you have not used the Baseball Reference Play Index, I highly recommend it. It's available at (laughs) baseballreference.com. It is a frequently used tool. And Mm -hmm. now that I have bought that much time, I can tell you that over the past three years, oh my god, this is even better than I thought. Okay, I looked up team splits over the past three years combined. I don't know why three years. Could have done four, could have done two. I did three. The best left fielders or the best team left field position offensively, the Tigers. Maybe some coincidence, maybe not coincidence. 826 OPS for the Detroit Tigers left fielders over the past three years. Mm -hmm. Second worst. Second worst. Baltimore Orioles, 675 OPS. Second worst. Orioles, 675. Worst Angels, 609 609 OPS, that is wow. 66, points, 66? 66 points worse than the second worst. Angels left field, terrible. Not made up with defense, just terrible. So yeah, there is probably also some additional urgency here. Angels just thinking like the hell with this position Let's just get someone actually good Instead Mm -hmm. of just trying to catch lightning in a Cardboard box so they went and they got Justin Upton and he should be pretty good although It's a month and who knows what he's going to do over a month Because there was that month Eric Young played like Mike Trout So you know can't actually know That's the one downside of trying to make a move Where you have so little time left Mm -hmm. All right, you want to talk about the Twins? Alright so Twins were losing To the White Sox as I was writing my post About the Angels which is relevant because at that point The Twins were one game up on the Angels in the race for the second wildcard position The twins ultimately came back to win And they came back to win in the following fashion Juan Manaya is apparently closing For the White Sox, Juan Manaya Apparently a major league pitcher He took over for Danny Farquhar Who I would have guessed that he was on any number of other teams Before I guessed he was on the White Sox But Ira Adrianza Singled Zach Granite bunt popped out Bad bunt Zach Granite only playing because Byron Buxton hurt but should be fine anyway single bunt out walk single that's a game tying single so put runners on the corners then a walk then a line out a soft line out back to the mound and then bases loaded two outs bottom of the ninth tie game Max Kepler comes up against Juan Mania, and on the first pitch he gets hit in the leg and it's a walk off Mm hit-by-pitch for the Twins. That is the first walk-off hit-by-pitch of the season in wow. major leagues according to the Baseball Reference Play Index. I don't know how much detail they have the further back you go, but the play index at least lets me search back to 1930, which uh, if we just assume that these results are as reliable as anything, there have been... This is now the 67th, at least regular season, walk-off hit-by-pitch. The all-time leader in walk-off hit-by-pitch issued, Randy Moffitt. So, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. He leads with two he's the only <laughs> pitcher with two and the uh the all-time leader in walk-off hit by pitches gathered i guess johnny gomes johnny gomes uh, with two it. and in fact to make it just a little more fun back in august of 2011 johnny gomes drew a walk-off hit by pitch against Brad Lidge, and then the next major league walk-off hit by pitch in april of 2012 was by johnny gomes against jonathan broxton so Johnny Gomes, uh, not only is he the only guy who's done it twice, but he had the two consecutive for reference. Last season, there were two all year long. 2015, there was one 2014. There were three just going back. I don't see any evidence of any season that ever got to four. So this is actually more rare than I thought when I looked it up in the play index. I was thinking that maybe it was like the third or fifth time it had happened this season, but no, nope, it's the first Max Kepler, Juan Mania. Thank you for your amusement.
0: Well, when I was at your house a couple of weeks ago and putting the finishing touches on my Salinas Stockade story, I was waiting to see what would happen in the game before the piece went up. And I was actually listening to the live radio broadcast because I was waiting to update some stats. And copy editors and fact checkers were all waiting for the Salinas Stockade game to end so that we could finalize the article. And they lost on a walk off wild pitch. So I guess it's not shocking. They've lost a lot of times and a lot of ways this season. But. <laughs> another fun aspect of their season. So, I wanted to mention an update on javelin throwing and pitchers. I'm surprised that this actually didn't come up before when we talked about this, but I saw it posted in the Facebook group the I think consensus Best javelin thrower of all time, Jan Zelezhny is... The? uh, Jan (laughs) Zelezhny? The, yes. He is a a Czech track and field athlete. He won some gold medals, I think, maybe back-to-back gold medals. And after he did that, he, for some reason, tried out for the Braves, kind of. (laughs) So there's this 1996 article in the New York Times. It's from August. Javelin thrower shows Braves his stuff. And it says Jan Zaleshny gave a mighty heave and threw the baseball The first he had ever gripped over the backstop and into the tarpaulin Rolled up beside the infield at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium Hot cheese shouted the Atlanta Braves pitching coach Leo Mazzoni In a kind of baseball equivalent to golf's four As members of the Braves grounds crew scattered And he had then he was 29 years old four days earlier He had won his second Olympic gold medal in the javelin He was the first to win consecutive gold medals in javelin since 1924 The Braves Director of Scouting and Player Development Paul Snyder said We were not disappointed at all in what we saw today Which doesn't really (laughs) It's not not really a ringing endorsement Maybe they had zero expectations So He said that Selezny would be invited to spring training, and if he continues to test out well, offered a minor league contract. I have no idea if any of that happened. I don't know if this is on Selezny's Wikipedia page. It is not. Okay, so I'm guessing that didn't happen, but... Snyder continued, the arm strength that we anticipated was there, the athleticism we anticipated was there, and again, he says, we're not disappointed, one iota, it will take a prolonged process of dedication, the same dedication Jan has had to the Javelin to become a major league pitcher, but I was quite surprised how quickly he adapted and picked things up from Leo, and evidently, Bill Clark, who is an international scout for the Braves, heard of Zelezny from the managers of a baseball team in Prague, and the... Scout Clark said he watched Selezny at a track meet, called Snyder, the Braves' director of scouting and player development, and he said, I don't know whether this guy can throw 70 miles per hour or 110 miles an hour, but he can sure throw the javelin. So, evidently, Brave scouts went and watched Zelezhny throw the javelin, and heard reports that he had thrown a softball more than 400 feet. He said after this tossing session that he had never thrown a baseball except one to toss to his eight-year-old son, so Mazzoni had to show him how to grip it, and then tell him about the pitching mound and the rubber and all of that and pitching motion. It says, Snyder estimated later that Zaleshny was throwing 80 to 85 miles an hour. And Zaleshny estimated his effort at about 70%. So that would suggest that he could throw pretty hard. I don't I don't know if the math really works out there exactly. But anyway, Zaleshny says, I am twice... Olympic gold medalist twice world champion And I have set five world records in the javelin If I can be successful in baseball I would like to do it I am looking for something new to do in my life You have just sent me a link Which I'm guessing <laughs> is the link that I was going to send to you Is it Jan Zaleshny throwing a baseball? Yes for, it is uh, Yeah, a 40, 41 second video uh-huh. And uh, I was going to ask you to tell me What you thought of his motion
1: Well, uh, his motion looks like the motion of One of those Hollywood actors who's trying to pitch you know yeah. he's a uh, he gets a lot of it kind of correct but if I am looking at this correctly he's uh he's Short arming the ball which maybe not So much of a uh, of a surprise But the thing that sticks out to me the most is uh, I guess I should say The thing that sticks out to me the second most Because what sticks <laughs> yeah. out to me the most is that this is a javelin right. Olympian pitching for the Braves But if you look closely there's just a, a fleeting image Of the uh, the catcher he's pitching to Which is Ned Yost The uh, yeah. Braves bullpen coach or catcher uh, In 1996 but in any case I'm looking now at the 22 second mark I have it just kind of going frame by frame But Zaleshny he's got his his forward arm out there like you'd think and his lead leg is out there and everything looks okay. He doesn't have much of a follow through so I don't know no. a whole lot about how a javelin is thrown but Zelezny, Zelezny, Zelezny? Zelezny. <laughs> yes, I, I think you got yeah, it. If, if Jan Zaleshny would like to come on and correct our pronunciation then you are more than welcome <laughs> to talk about your experiences with the Raves. but yeah, the motion is close uh, and I would assume it's maybe it's the kind of motion that could be coached and polished or maybe on the other hand his background was so wedded to javelin throwing that maybe he his muscle memory just couldn't be overwritten. But uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if he was throwing in the eighties with this motion, then he probably could have climbed up to I don't know, one hundred forty-four miles per hour. <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: I mean, he was at seventy percent at like eighty to eighty-five. So God,
1: it's math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we could just do some uh, quick calculations One hundred fourteen. Yeah. If uh, if he's throwing seventy percent. And he's throwing 80 miles per hour. Then it's only math. It's uh, then his 100% Jan Zelezny, This is tripping me up. 114.28 miles per hour would be his uh, 100% effort. So Braves missed the boat. Yeah, they really did. I guess every other team missed it
0: even more. But if anyone knows the outcome of the story, I assume the outcome is just he went back to throwing javelins and no one ever spoke of this again. But I am Wait a second. why it never went anywhere.
1: Okay. I found an article from The Guardian Thursday, September 9th, 2010, written by Paul Doyle, but seemingly with Steve Backley. This is a former javelin world record holder. Okay. Okay. And so this is a a question from the interviewer to Steve. uh, Tell us, Steve, with your phenomenal throwing prowess, you'd probably have made a decent quarterback. Did you ever consider a lucrative move into American football? Okay, so here is the full text of his response. I probably couldn't have made it as a quarterback because that's a very technical position. But I'll tell you what, there was some interest as a baseball pitcher. Pitchers are massively reliant on a fast arm more than technique. My sort of nemesis, Jan Zalegny, tried out for the (laughs) Atlanta Braves, and they were very impressed with his speed of release, which was over 100 miles per hour. Which only the top pitchers can do, but his aim wasn't so flash. In fact, at this media day, they set up to have another look at him. He hit a Japanese photographer, which I found quite amusing. But apparently, (laughs) in the Atlanta Braves Stadium, only three people have ever thrown a home run from the plate where you hit from, which is about 120 yards or something, and he did it with his first throw. You see, throwing flat wasn't so easy, but once you have to put a bit of elevation into it, like a javelin thrower, he was brilliant. Interesting. Wow. I don't know how much of this. So this is from an article from 2010. So I don't know how much is apocryphal or how much is accurate because his triad was 14 years earlier, but 100 miles per hour. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like he would have gotten a better offer if he was throwing 100 miles per yeah, hour. Yeah, I, I would think so
0: if he had wanted one. Anyway, this is a, a good entry in the saga of javelin throwers as pitchers. If anyone <laughs> knows more. Please feel free to let us know. So I just had two more things I wanted to package together before we get to Will or or before I'm finished with bantering. And these are two things that I wanted to get your thoughts on why they don't happen more often. Two fun things that have happened recently. The first is that Rich Hill bunted for a bass hit. Carson Sistoli wrote about this on Fangrass. And This is something that Hill has done before, at least he did it in the NLDS last year. It's just another reason to love Rich Hill. He did it in the midst of a pretty terrible start that followed his excellent almost 10-inning start prior to that. But it was a just a very competent bunt. He laid it down the other way and he beat it out. And not the first time he's done it, but Carson went through the math and pointed out that it is very rare for pitchers to bunt for base hits and that in many cases, even when they are credited with bunting for a base hit, that's not really what happens. Often there's a squeeze play or something. That they get credited for a base hit For and it's pretty rare for A pitcher to bunt with the bases empty Which is the case here So why do you think that is Because Rich Hill I don't know Where he ranks on the Pitcher athleticism spectrum but You'd think that pitchers Bunt a lot just by necessity They sacrifice all the time It's not an enormous leap from Sacrificing to bunting for A base hit now I, I guess you just Take out all the sacrifices Maybe there aren't really all that many Opportunities left
1: But why do you think we do not see this more often? I think it's probably two things, aside from how bunting is hard. Uh, the, the StatCast sprint speed leaderboards don't include pitchers, because I <laughs> guess they just don't have enough to qualify, but I'm going to guess that pitchers are slow, certainly yeah. slow relative to the other players, and then you are also just going to have infielders who are playing more shallow because they hit the ball poorly, and so you, if you have a slower runner with infielders who are at least somewhat anticipating either a weekly hit ball or a bunt, then you have the recipe for a lot of Automatic outs. Now, you could argue, on the other hand, that most pitcher plate appearances are already kind of automatic outs, and that's true. Mm-hmm. But I suspect that it's almost too obvious that pitchers would try to bunt, and I think that the opponents would sniff it out uh, almost all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. And the last thing I wanted to ask about is this one, Nicasio situation.
1: Oh, good. Which that was on my it, list as well.
0: Okay, cool. So this seems like. An effectively wild scenario. I don't remember getting this email, but it seems like we should have gotten this email at some point. So the pirates. It's hard to describe because there are waivers involved and different types of waivers and claims, and that always gets confusing for listeners and for speakers. But essentially, the Pirates placed Juan Nicasio on outright waivers, which means that he can just go anywhere. And I will read the statement here from Neil Huntington. And this is unusual because Nicasio is good. He's one of the Pirates' better relievers and certainly someone who could help a lot of contending teams. So there was a lot of consternation about why they were just letting him leave. And Huntington says, we took the unusual step of placing a quality person and pitcher in Juan Nicasio on outright waivers for a variety of reasons. Given our recent record and regression in the standings, we intend to give the higher leverage innings to other pitchers that may or will impact our 2018 club. We acknowledge the minimal amount of money saved by making this move. However, as a result of our decision and Juan's pending free agency at the end of the season, we felt it appropriate to attempt to move Juan to a better situation for him. We recently requested trade waivers on Juan, and he was claimed by a playoff-caliber club that indicated to us their primary motivation was to block us from being able to trade Juan elsewhere. This is where it gets confusing— and that they were not willing to give us more than very marginal value in return if we chose to trade Juan to them. Rather than help a direct competitor and recognizing the difference in claiming order between trade and outright waivers, we chose to take the chance to see if by placing Juan on outright waivers, he would end up with a different playoff contender, preferably one in the American League. We appreciate all that Juan has done for our team and our organization. We wish him the best. And I know there was a Keith Law tweet. As far as he is aware, there. Are no injury concerns with Nicasio, no character concerns with Nicasio. So it's not that. It's really, it seems to be what Huntington is saying here that they just felt like Nicasio would be better off if they just let him roam free so i'm curious about why you think the scenario happened in this instance and why we don't see this sort of thing more often because obviously there are a lot of teams that are out of the race at this point in every season and there are impending free agents on those teams so why don't we see this sort of thing do you think and what are the possible downsides I
1: don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know why this doesn't happen more. I think that this is a confusing situation on its own just because you have the pirates caring about where Nicasio goes, even though he's a free agent in a month or two. So you'd think it shouldn't really matter. I don't know who claimed him, but if you figure it's a it's a rival who was trying to block a trade, then it's someone who, I don't know if that means it's the Cardinals or the Brewers or or what, who might have interfered. It's still weird though, because like he's conceding that They're
0: not in the race, right? So, like, they don't really have a rival. I mean, maybe they have a historical rival, but does it even matter if someone in your division takes them if you are conceding the season already? I guess maybe it's just tougher to swallow for your fans or something.
1: I guess, but is that tougher to swallow than letting them go for for nothing Mm -hmm. and I don't this is every year we uh, we get asked if it really matters uh, trading players within your own division or if that's just something that writers say and apparently it does apparently people still don't like to exchange players with divisional foes or or league foes so you have Huntington here saying on the one hand he didn't want to give Nicasio to a rival for a a return of very marginal value but then he had Nicasio go for no value at all and he went to a, a bad team that's way out of the race so if anything it put Nicasio in a worse position than he was already in so I don't first of all I, I'm not entirely sure what the yeah, he went Phillies to the Phillies are, by the way we yeah. should say yeah I shouldn't yeah that should be mentioned I don't know ex- entirely what the Phillies are doing here and I don't know what reason they have for claiming him I can understand why Huntington would have thought that maybe Nicasio would slip through until he got to a team that kind of mattered a little bit and it's mm-hmm. weird that the Phillies jumped in but it's just a it's a really strange transaction and I guess I don't know what what would be contributing reasons for why we don't see this more. Teams well, first of all aren't as cheap as the Pirates are. <laughs> That's probably that part of it. Warm. Yeah.
0: What is Nakaseo's making? It's like 600,000 or something. Yeah, or,
1: a very yeah. small amount of baseball money.
0: Yeah, right. So, I guess it's that maybe players in your clubhouse would be upset just To have such a tangible sign That you are giving up I mean it's not like they've been Mathematically eliminated yet So maybe that could rub players the wrong way Or fans the wrong way Although you'd think that maybe players Would appreciate this in a sense Like it's something that maybe they would Be happy about if a team did it for them So you'd think that maybe they would Think oh you're doing a nice thing For my former teammate here But maybe it just goes against The competitive nature of fans And players and front office people for that reason and and managers and coaches to give up on a season so clearly.
1: Yeah. And one of the elements here is that the Pirates were kind of on the fringe of the race around Mm -hmm. the time of the trade deadline. So maybe they would have been unwilling to to give away a player to trade a player there. So you need sort of a change in team circumstances post deadline, because otherwise, if the Pirates were selling, then they could have sold Nicosio before the deadline as a quality late inning reliever, which is something that teams are always looking for around that time of the year. So it's it's weird. You see a lot of Le- uh, lower profile moves that organizations make to try to give their players better opportunities. You'll see this often with like veterans who are stuck in AAA or just kind of generally very low value players, where organizations just treasure them as people and then they want to give them uh, an opportunity somewhere where maybe that player isn't blocked. But this is this is one of the higher higher talent cases of this that I can recall, and I'm not in the end I'm not entirely sure anyone is sappy about it because the Pirates didn't get necessarily the outcome they wanted. They didn't get any value in return. And now Nicasio is on the worst team in baseball. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right. That was all I got. You got any outstanding banter here? Oh, it's not outstanding, but there's one left. Uh, <laughs> okay. And it's it's I don't even have a point to make about it. It's just an article regarding something I'd never thought of before in the article. It's from the uh, the Post Gazette. I don't know if this crossed your feed or got your attention. It's by Elizabeth Bloom. And the title of the article is why Western Pennsylvania dirt is used in the infields of most MLB stadiums. I hmm. have never really thought about the dirt. Uh, I mean, I've thought about the dirt, but I've never thought about the composition of the dirt or where it comes from. And mm-hmm. I think more people have an understanding of where like the baseball mud comes from, right? That's in what right. Is it, New Jersey or Delaware. One of those. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Is it Along the Delaware River. I, well, okay. So maybe I don't have the understanding. But anyway, I used <laughs> to have the understanding. And actually, if I'm not mistaken, aren't they phasing out the baseball? Mud? I think anyway. so.
0: Yeah, it is in New Jersey, I believe. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if they're going to continue doing that. But it's been used for quite a long time. South Jersey
1: off the Delaware River, the uh, Lena Blackburn baseball rubbing mud. Okay. So if uh, if you cease thinking about baseball rubbing mud because it ceases to be a thing, then perhaps more people will think about baseball dirt. And we've got uh, the the company profiled in this article is called Dura Edge. That's Dura Edge, one word, camel case, E and D. And it uh, there's just an interesting article to read, just because it talks about. Now, granted, this article might be framing Dura Edge infield dirt as being better than it actually is. However, it is the dirt that's used in I think it says 21 of the 30 major league stadiums, and it's also used in hundreds of other fields, even specifically in the Pennsylvania area. There are some quotes toward the bottom. Let's see. Sean Rodriguez. The article concludes with, quote, but perhaps the strongest endorsement came from utility player Sean Rodriguez, who recently returned to the Pirates after a stint with the Dura-Edge-less Atlanta Braves at the new SunTrust Park. So for reference, SunTrust Park does not have a Dura-Edge dirt infield mm-hmm. pnc park does in fact they have a brand new dirt edge infield quote this place has been amazing since i've been back a couple of days rodriguez said of pnc park atlanta i don't know being a new field i don't know if they're still trying to get a feel for how it's going to work but i would definitely give this field a way bigger edge than atlanta right now so sean rodriguez throwing a little shade at <laughs> SunTrust park and and really talking up the brand new PNC infield Jordy Mercer is in here saying uh, the infield has been quote amazing this year they did it right it needed to be redone but they did it the right way and it's been awesome this is apparently something that some players do care about and This is supposed to be a very high quality composition of soil. It's a mixture of clay and sand and uh, something else that's also in the article. And I don't remember what it is, but it's it's super absorbent. And then there's facts in here about how the pirates have had fewer games postponed by rain ever since installing this dirt because Hmm. it just takes up so much water. So it's probably not the kind of thing that you're going to think about for weeks on end. It's not something that you're going to have dreams about. But if you've ever been curious about the dirt that is in 70% of Major League Baseball stadiums, there is an article waiting for you. All right. Curiosity satisfied. And apparently warning tracks are made of Colorado lava rock. Volcano fact.
0: (laughs) Does that mean it comes from like the rim of a volcano or it used to be magma or something?
1: Uh, well, any lava rock would, yeah, that yeah. would be former it's, magma. I, I don't know when there's magma a specific stops being place magma. where it comes from. We'll have to do further research into this somewhere. And uh, well, one of the largest eruptions, in fact, maybe the largest known eruption in the history of the planet took place in what is currently southwestern Colorado, I believe. Mm-hmm. But that's a very, very ancient eruption. But there's there's lava rock everywhere and just to be clear so no one sends in corrections i know i just said under my breath i don't know when magma stops being magma that was dumb i know what it does and it's when it breaches the surface but i don't know when lava stops being lava i don't think it ever does okay all right let's take
0: a quick break and we will be right back with will johnson
2: with all allegiance
0: So you might be aware of our guest today. From his musical career, he is a very prolific singer-songwriter. He has been in almost too many bands to keep track of, most notably Matic and South San Gabriel. But he has also become a baseball artist later in his career, and is auctioning off a work currently for Hurricane Harvey Relief, which is why we wanted to have him on now, although I've been meaning to have him on for some time. So it's Will Johnson. Hey, Will. Hey. Hi. So I love the art, and I've seen it pop up in our Facebook group from time to time. People will point it out to each other. I'm curious about how it kind of became a thing that you exhibit and sell as opposed to just a hobby or a pastime? Cause I, I know that Ben Gibbard, who's a listener of the show and, and my other podcast has talked up your work and has bought some of your work, but how did it kind of reach the larger world?
2: I started making these things, I don't know, almost 10 years ago and, and I had gone through a breakup and, you know, moved into this sort of dank apartment and didn't have a lot to decorate the walls with. And so, uh, I just figured, I don't know, I'd always been messing around with painting, but never seriously. I finally started making a couple of baseball paintings just to hang on the walls to fill the space and kind of pay tribute to uh, some of the players that I've always loved, but also some of the players that I wanted to learn more about and that I also thought more people should know about. So uh, I did that for about a year and a half or two years, I want to say. And then finally, a friend from Vermont, Commissioned me to make a painting and then about six or eight months after that a record store asked me to put a collection together for an art show and um it's been pretty steady you know since that time i'll 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 try to make time for painting or working on commissions or building art shows whenever really whenever i'm home between tours i don't know it just sort of uh provides kind of a peaceful and therapeutic way to create something a little more quietly than banging on a loud electric guitar really
0: <laughs>
1: yeah i don't have access to every single piece of baseball art that you've ever made but at least for the most part i'll say for the most part uh you have you have a pretty consistent theme pretty consistent layout you have a sort of the one of the upper side quadrants of a baseball player's body and a, a name <laughs> and a quote or something biographical so how how long I guess have you have you sort of stuck with that theme, and how why why is that a uh, a format that appeals to you so much?
2: I've always liked the idea of having the player partway in the frame. Uh, I mean, obvious for for space and you know for text real estate purposes, it has to be that way just to get some of their story in. But also, there's something about there's maybe a little more mystery to it when, when they're sort of peeking into the frame and usually their eyes are averted, you know, left or right. I think one or two of them are looking straight up. Uh, I think Rube Waddell was looking up in the sky because he was obsessed with planes (laughs) and things like that. Usually mid, mid, you know, mid pitching start. Right. But uh, (laughs) most of the time, there's something about it that, feels kind of subdued to my eye and a little bit tranquil and the game itself can be can be that way but it also can be you know sometimes I'll get requests for action you know action shots or action poses which is fine but it seems so rare even through baseball card culture you know a lot of the time I always enjoyed the cards that had the players in more of a tranquil sort of subdued state mm-hmm. perhaps during spring training or something uh, when they're just kind of warming up to the season and warming up to the idea of we got six or seven months of this you know down the road and they're, sometimes when you catch a player in an introspective state it just I don't know it intrigued me as a kid I always wanted to know what they were thinking about and I think with the paintings I've worked to to kind of transmit that similar energy or even lack thereof there's something about it that's some somewhat introspective with each player and and, and i want to go for that with each portrait mm-hmm. if it's a commission that you know that wants say if it's a commissioner that wants i don't know don mattingly in his famous stance i'll definitely do it but for whatever reason i kind of enjoy the more uh, the more introspective takes
0: on players do you remember what your first piece of baseball art was i mean maybe it was some childhood doodle or something but you know your first kind of uh fully produced piece
2: yeah i made a small i made a tiny painting of satchel page from my bathroom like i don't know 12 13 years ago Mm -hmm. and then the first one of the larger scale like the size of paintings that I work with now the first one I made was Alta Weiss
0: Hmm.
2: so and then I think you know some some of the more household names after that Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron and such but Alta Alta's number one and as far as my paintings history catalog goes she's she's the first one Mm
0: -hmm. and there are a lot of legends obviously you get asked to do prominent players is there like a most obscure player you've been asked to draw
2: there's definitely an obscure one and i've become friends with the guy that commissioned me for it this happened about five and a half years ago and i received an email kind of from from my manager and it was forwarded from this fellow in iowa and he wanted me to make a painting of his father and his father happened to pitch the uh, first no hitter in swedish baseball history (laughs) wow and so I learned a lot in that email because I wasn't really aware that there was
0: <laughs> Swedish baseball history. Swedish baseball history, <laughs>
2: and so uh, at first I thought, man, this guy's this guy's just messing with me. But uh, and that's pretty funny if he is. That's pretty freaking awesome if that But then I looked it up and you know did some research, and then he sent me a few clippings, and lo and behold, it was true. And uh, his father's name is Bill Haglund. The guy's name is Carl Haglund. He's a painter from Charles City, Iowa, and we've since become good friends but uh, his father bill uh, was one of the more obscure ball players that i've painted and i was happy to learn a lot about swedish baseball history right there while making that painting <laughs> i finally wound up meeting him a couple of years later and we had a good talk but uh, i do occasionally get you know something along those lines maybe someone whose father you know pitched a no-hitter for a certain college back in the day things like that if there's a family tie-in and there's actually some stats and more importantly if there's a story that i can kind of i don't know sink my teeth into and really kind of get going with then i'm really excited to take on a painting no matter how obscure the player I mean, a lot of the time, the more obscure paintings are, are often the more fun ones to do because not only am I learning a lot of new stuff, but I feel like maybe potentially I'm going to transmit some new stuff to the viewer. Whereas we're all well familiar with the Babe Ruths of the world, you know, and and I'll paint a Babe Ruth, uh, but it's the, usually the more obscure ones that I get more fired up about painting anymore, it seems like.
1: I think uh, Ben and I are probably on the same page where we would agree that we'd like to now Convert this into a podcast episode about the history of Swedish baseball. Yeah. So what, I don't know. I don't know how much you remember learning from your learning process. But what if you if somebody asks you about the history of Swedish baseball, what do you recall? What are facts that you have off the top of your head?
2: Well, the guy played for Lexen. I believe it's spelled for L, it's spelled L E K S. A-N-D. I think that's how you spell it. But nonetheless, he, he threw the no-hitter, I guess, in the late 60s. He was playing ball in Germany before that and was in the military. And this is kind of what they did for, you know, spare time and fun and all that stuff. And then he wound up stationed in Sweden and playing for Lex. And, and uh, lo and behold, he threw the first no-hitter.
0: <laughs> so when you, um, Oh, do you have more <laughs> more about no, Swedish No, No, that's, that's about...
2: That's about the best I can give you. I mean, yeah. I can I can dig up a print or the painting itself. I can look at an image of the painting itself and tell you even more, but that's what I know off the top of my
1: head. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's listed here on Wikipedia. Lexund is a uh, home to one of the oldest and more successful baseball clubs in Sweden. One of the <laughs> oldest and more successful. How, you know, never mind. Go <laughs> ahead. Ben, it's all yours.
0: <laughs> so, how do you decide Unless it's a request from someone who has commissioned it, how do you decide what text to put on the painting? Because sometimes it will be a quote, sometimes it will just be a big block of text that you wrote about the player's career. Are you trying to get at the essence of that player or, or just summarize his career or what's the goal?
2: It kind of depends. It it goes from painting to painting. I mean, certain commissioners are a little more hands-on with regard to what stats or what quotes they might want included, but most people are just like, hey man, run with it. You know, do your thing and And we'll be happy, I'm sure. So, which is a nice vote of confidence. I don't know that I deserve that vote of confidence still. I feel (laughs) like I'm still kind of in my apprenticeship with all this stuff. But a lot of the time, a quote can really sum so much up, you know, and the quote can kind of dominate it. So I'll make sure that that at least gets in there toward the end. And in some cases, the quote is so good that it speaks louder than the stats in so many ways. And I'll just make it make it the painting. You know, if you want to look up more on the player, you're free to do it. But that Mookie Wilson quote, like I didn't really want to put anything else on there because the quote is so powerful and strong, whether or not it's true. (laughs) I come back to it quite frequently. If ever, I find myself in daily question or existential crisis. I think about the Mookie quote. (laughs) Do you want to read it since you brought it
0: up? We'll we'll link to it for everyone. But uh, do you want to tell us about the, the Mookie image? Yeah,
2: I got to get back close to it. Um
0: run right running around the house here. Um,
2: now, you guys know that it's probably
0: not true, right? I've been told it's not true. <laughs> yeah, I think there, there's a, a parody newspaper article that it comes from, right? I, I think, maybe. But... Yes,
2: I, thought that, I feel like I saw another one
0: from Ray Knight, perhaps. Uh-huh.
2: But uh, anyway, the Mookie quote goes, When I'm in a slump, I comfort myself by saying, If I believe in dinosaurs, then somewhere they must be believing in me. <laughs> And if they believe in me, then I can believe in me. And then I bust out. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I could put a lot of stats and stuff in there. And perhaps I will the next time I make a Mookie painting. But just on Sunday when I was making this one, it just had to go that way. I didn't want to muck it up with anything else. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> what is sort of the process from start to finish? How long, I guess, does one of these paintings take as you're uh, designing it and coming up with the quote or the biography and, and then just the execution of it?
2: Um, usually, I can get I can get one done in about, if it's a smaller one, and when I say smaller, maybe that's like 10 to 12 inches across, but I say 20, 24 inches tall, I can get one of those done in a day. Um, and then maybe one of the larger ones, which is like a foot across by say four feet tall. That's you know maybe a a day, day and a half. You know, but I've gotten I've gotten faster at them over time. I just I don't know. I feel like maybe I've gotten a little bit more confident with them. Mm. But I also kind of have them. Kind of got my method down to where I'll cut the board to size, and then sketch the player out, and get a lot of the nuances and sort of the wrinkles and things like that taken care of just with the pencil. And then I'll uh, and then I'll set into painting. But a lot of the fun is uniform research, and that gets real fun, especially when it you know before we had color photographs and say you know guessing exactly what the page fence giants uniform looked like. (laughs) Or you know, the Chicago American Giants, I have sort of a feel for it from the black and white photos, but it's always fun to get in there and do the research and try to figure out colors through black and white photographs if that makes sense mm-hmm. and kind of go go through that. I mean, and that that sends me down a whole different wormhole of you know, fascination with uniform history and uniform design, functional, you know, function over fashion or fashion over function, whichever the matter may be. Uh, that sends me down a whole new Word. nerd Path.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's your own history with baseball? I know you, you grew up in Missouri, right? So you're a Cardinals fan, but you're in Texas now. What what kind of fan are you, I guess?
2: Oh, I mean I tuned in I'm not gonna tell you I'm tuned in every game. That's not true, but I'm tuned in for, you know, three or four games a week at least. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife and I, we've got two kiddos and they're active and, and I can't always just hole up in the corner and watch baseball on my computer, but I will have it on the radio and you know kind of check in as we're cooking or as we're kind of doing our evening routine and that was always the way it was when I was a kid and I was fortunate enough to grow up you know with the the voice of Jack Buck regularly kind of streaming through the house mm-hmm. and um, that's how I became a Cardinals fan I guess in the late 70s and then the 82 team of course was a really attractive you know appealing thing in our part of the world so uh, I've just been loyal to them ever since and I've been living in Texas since 1983. So, uh, there wasn't a lot, there wasn't much else to do in, in the little town that I come from. Uh, it's a town called Kennett, Missouri. It's, not so far from the Mississippi river up from Memphis, a little ways it's cotton and soybean farming country. And, uh, I mean, you know, you played sports so you got went out and got in trouble pretty much. So I played baseball for, for all my years, you know, my, as many years as I was allowed to there and then got down here and played a little bit. But after that, I, discovered punk rock and got into bands and realized that all the other kids were growing up big and strong and that I was always going to be about five seven and not that big and strong and I was going to play music instead I mean yes there are the Altuve's of the world but I knew reality set in about age 15 or 16 and I realized yeah to come up, and play music.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would be a different story if somebody had, had introduced Jose Altuve to punk rock back in the day. <laughs> so, I guess if you still most identify as a Cardinals fan, then I think that you have sufficient authority to be able to express you must have a Mike Matheny opinion. You are now free to express it. <laughs> Man, he had
2: me so twisted <laughs> for so much of the year on the lineup, you know? I just didn't know what to expect each night. It was changing every night and I oh, I was concerned that, you know, maybe the players were kind of tangled in their shoestrings with the whole thing, not knowing what to expect and what roles to, you know, to be expected of them through the lineup for the first part of the season. I can't profess to know, though. I don't know anything about baseball. Good grief. The year 2006 (laughs) told me that I don't know anything about baseball when the Cardinals went 81 and 81 and backed into the playoffs and then won it all. So, you know, I can't profess to know. I mean, a lot of people gripe about, you know, a lot of people want a colorful and charismatic and, you know, a dazzling manager personality. And he definitely is, you know, he's pretty tight lipped for sure. Mm-hmm. Even the strange quirks of La Russa, you know, being what great friends with Dennis DeYoung and the only vegan manager in baseball and, you know, his kind of his interesting quirks, you know, a lot of people. I think at the beginning, really missed that. Of course, they missed the winning team. <laughs> the teams, the teams winning the World Series also help, of course. But there's sort of a stoic consistency about Matheny that I still like, and that I still, I still respect, and I still, you know, I feel like he's a relatable manager to the players, and I feel like, I mean, I, in a way, I think the dude could probably still go out there and play. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, just, I like him. I'm happy with him actually so far. So but the lineup thing earlier in the year was, you know, it was a little bit of a head stretcher, but again, I can't profess to know. He, knows, we found he knows far better than most of us.
1: <laughs> we found the Cardinals fan. who's happy with Mike Matheny. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's <laughs> a hell of a guess. <laughs>
2: I'm still giving him a chance. I'm not I'm not bailing on
0: him. So, has the baseball art opened up other artistic opportunities? Because just browsing your Instagram, I see that you recently did a, a concert poster for Jason Isbell. You did an evil Knievel portrait. It seems like you're branching out a bit or, or had chances to do other things.
2: Yeah, sometimes i'll i'll get asked to do things i mean the evil knievel thing has spawned you know some new direction and then i'm thinking about doing just a series of stunt people quite frankly mm-hmm. so yeah I've, I've done a few things like that i did a i got asked to do a to build a show of tennessee volunteer football legends a couple of years ago which sounds pretty obscure but i I was very, very excited to do it because my father graduated from there and he raised me on Tennessee volunteer football and took me to a lot of games as a kid. And so it was a big part of our family and kind of a big part of our bonding as father and son. So I said yes to doing it and I picked him up on the way to Knoxville to hang the show and we went to the homecoming game and the whole deal. I got to do something that I'd always wanted to do, which was take him to a football game in Knoxville. So I've Kind of checked out some other subject matter here and there, and sometimes it is nice to I don't know to take a little bit of a break from the baseball thing, just to do I don't know stadium paintings or the Isbel thing or the Evil Knievel kind of thing. uh, I have this series. Call shit I think about when trail running uh which is it gets kind of out there because you run a heap of miles and you're you know it gets a little psychedelic at times and they'll come home and kind of try to document some of those things anyway I'm not altogether sure I know what I'm doing in those realms but I sure like messing around with them and I figure you know teaches me a little something so I'll break away from baseball from time to time to do that kind of stuff mm-hmm.
1: Well, you're not going to break away from baseball for the remainder of this podcast because I'm going to go right to baseball because uh, you you obviously come at, at watching baseball from a, a, a different perspective than uh, than what Ben or I do where we have the analytical bent and then you're... Uh, I don't know, I hate the word creative, but you might look at it in a little more artistic sense. But you, I was also scrolling through your Instagram not too long ago, and you uh, you recently presented an argument against the ESPN strike zone frame that is placed on the screen. And uh, I, yeah, I was uh, was curious if you'd like to lay out your argument against it, because uh, you, uh, I think it's, it, it was, it read more unique than arguments I've heard against it before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think it's you know I sort of think it's this it's like a new version. Do you remember the glow puck in the mid 90s? I think it was Fox forget the glow puck. It's just like an extension of the glow puck. I think it's, it's insulting to the viewer. I mean we can all see where the ball's going and we know that the every ump has his has his own strike zone and that's gonna differ sometimes within the matter not only of a game but within a matter of an inning. And uh, there are many times where the ESPN strike zone, it's not a strike. It might land outside of the strike zone, but it's still called a strike. It just seems useless and it seems kitschy to me. And uh, I think it takes away from,
0: we don't need another video graphic on the screen, especially not there. Mm -hmm. Is there a a legacy of baseball art that you pay any attention to that you take any cues from like are there other artists who have done work in baseball or or even just individual works that you admire
2: there are a couple there's the guy that did the book um we are the ship do you know what i'm talking about uh, i'm totally blanking on his name right now you got me running around i'm gonna find okay. it uh, on the shelf here
0: at least i think i'm gonna find it on the shelf here. Not <laughs> sure where it went. Uh, is it Kadir nelson
2: Yes, Kadir Nelson, thank you very much for bailing me out on that. I love his work. (laughs) Just as soon as you said it, I found it. I really like his work a lot. But most of the time, it's it's more like it's more American folk artists definitely love uh, the work of Howard Finster a lot I think the bright colors and his use of text and uh, the energy within his paintings was definitely an inspiration no question about it mm-hmm. so he would be one that comes to mind for sure my buddy here in town actually a guy named Tim Kerr I think he captures the human form in a really amazing way he doesn't use he uses some text, but it's it's not quite as uh, carpal tunnel as mine, I don't think. I definitely <laughs> dig in and you know write a lot of tiny, tiny texts and, and kind of push that a little bit more. But uh, I love his use of color and his use of uh, the way that he positions his subjects, for sure. Uh, he's got a rawness to his work as well that I've always loved. So there's a couple right there. I mean, it's from the past and from the present that definitely inspire me to, to kind of keep messing around with
0: with the human form and just trying to get better, you know? Where do you stand on baseball music, whether it's like, uh, you know, (laughs) the baseball project or the isotopes or just a a one-off song like Ben did for Ichiro, or has there been any baseball influence on your musical work?
2: A little bit, but it's been mostly sort of obscure metaphors that are just sort of tucked into into songs that you would I mean if you read the title or even listen to it sort of casually you probably wouldn't pick up on it but there have been a few you know there have been a few little references here and there I suppose I I leaned heavy on the sports metaphor within my lyrics from I would say about 1998 until 2005 and I just had to like I had to back off (laughs) <laughs> I, just had to, I just had to kind of back away from it because it was, I don't know, it was becoming a little too much of a regular, too regular thing. So I, I haven't done as much lately, but as for the baseball project, yes, I love them very much. And I'm friends with, with all those folks. Actually, we're all on an email list together. There's probably 15 of us and we're all obsessed with rocking. I mean, we're all musicians most of us are musicians and um, varying levels of baseball obsession and so we check in with each other quite a lot just on various topics and subjects and mostly baseball but sometimes just life or TV or rock and roll or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. I just remembered mm-hmm. something though when you brought up the uh, the ESTNK zone um, <laughs> a friend of mine had a really good idea and I think I have my I do think I have my uh, Halloween costume put together and that i think i'm just going to face it i'm going to look it in the face and do the full uniform but do the the white square cut out in my midsection and just be the catcher with the k-zone <laughs> and see if see how many people actually get the reference because i've had a lot of responses on my uh on my outburst about the k-zone <laughs> <laughs>
1: Has there a has there been one particular piece among your your history of baseball art where maybe you just kinda ran into a wall or you just you found that it was it was more difficult than you were expecting, whether it's the painting or finding the uh, the text to put beside it?
2: Yeah, I've slaughtered the text before and had to start up. <laughs> just break the thing over my knee and um, I've done that a time or two. I've uh, run out of space before because, you know, obviously it's space intensive, you only have so much to work with and you really got to wrap it up if you're running low on <laughs> space and had to back up and paint over some things and you know, correct that. I've had misspellings in the middle of it that I'll, you know, get done and reread and it's like, ah, oh, crap, man. I, you know, I misspelled that word, I got in a hurry and now I got to back up and I was dealing with a seven letter word, but now it's an eight letter word and of course everything's so packed in there and it's like you got to make it, you got to smooth it out and make it look you know, like you didn't miss anything, but that's definitely happened, for sure. Now, I haven't painted a name. I don't think I've painted a name across the top incorrectly yet. But, yeah, I've had some some typos here and there. That And then I think there was a time or two where, you know, just juggling a couple of brushes and I'll drop one. And, of course, it doesn't, like, bounce off of it, but it rolls right across <laughs> it and paint goes right all over it. So, yeah, there's been a couple of uh, dad tantrums, I guess, but they don't last long. <laughs> <laughs>
1: As a quick follow up, just uh, maybe it's a little obscure, but I was curious, in the Mookie painting you have you uh, you write in all capital letters except for eyes that aren't the word I. What is uh what is your reason for having lowercase eyes in the text?
2: I don't I am not real sure. I thought about that not so long ago when I was making the paintings, like, damn it, I'm still doing that. You know, the only place that I won't do the lowercase I is if the I is at the beginning of a sentence. Mm, yeah. Or If it's in the context of I or I'm, you know, in a quote or something like that, I don't know what that is. My 10th grade English teacher got on to me about that pretty bad, basically (laughs) suggesting I was going to fail out of college if I didn't learn how to write in cursive or if I didn't (laughs) write correctly. But I managed to get through college
0: doing that. But I'm not telling you that it's right. I don't know the rhyme or reason to it. It's kind of (laughs) strange. So the Mookie auction ends on Sunday. People can still get their bids in on eBay. We'll tell everyone where to find it. Why Mookie for this one? And is there anyone on your to-do list? Just someone you want to get to, not necessarily a commissioned piece.
2: I was just in a Mookie mood the other day. I've been meaning to make a painting with that quote on it for a couple of months now. And I had a little bit of extra time on Sunday morning and just kind of knocked it knocked it out. and. um so anyway, that was just one that was on the to-do list that it had been sitting on it for a while. And I just decided I'm going to go do something constructive this morning. There are a bunch of players that I still want to get to and, and even, you know, managers and owners. I still want to do a, a Bill Veck piece. I've never done one of those. I really would like to do to get to one of those. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, there's a few others here. I'd like to do, a. a Amani Irvin piece. I want to do a, a Saul White piece. There's a bunch of stadium pieces that I'd like to do still. I really want to get to a lot of the 19, like the early 70s Oakland A's. Uh, I just think some of those personalities were fantastic. I've done maybe three or four of them, but I'd like to do some more, uh, predominantly because I love painting that uniform. But um, so anyway, there's there's some 70s players that I'm you know that I would like to get to. I just think that that era of baseball was fascinating and it's what I kind of came up with so I go back to it whenever time allows. Anyway and you know like there's great facial hair and you know there's just amazing haircuts and facial hair from back then. It's always fun to, to paint those those guys.
0: Mm-hmm. Alright well the auction ends Sunday at 2pm Central. It is 10 by 22. It's acrylic and pencil and 100% of the proceeds go to the Houston Food Bank so go bid if you're in the Mookie Market and You can find all of Will's work on Twitter and Instagram at WillJohnsonTX and also at his website, will-johnson.com. All of his music is there. All of his paintings and shows are there. It is the central repository of Will Johnson's work. And he is ready and and waiting for commissions, I guess, if you have a favorite player, you can let him know. So, uh, Will, thank you very much for coming on.
2: absolutely. Thank you guys so much for... uh for letting me let me come along for a little while this has been really enjoyable i really appreciate it uh,
1: no thank you
0: all right so a reminder you can enter our raffle to benefit the hurricane harvey relief fund make your donation of ten dollars or a multiple of ten dollars at ghcf.org hurricane hyphen relief again just go to the facebook group it's pinned right to the top and you can get the mic that's sitting right next to me as i speak not the one i'm speaking into Autographed by me and Jeff and Sam, as well as an autographed copy of the book and an Effectively Wild t-shirt, and most important, the satisfaction of having helped people. And if you have any money left over, you can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already done so include Casey Olney, Adrian Lamont, Dominic Banfield, Ryan Johnson, and Mike Lehrman. Thanks to all of you. You can join the aforementioned Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Michael Batman and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We did 15 prop bets or over-unders for the rest of the season. It was pretty fun. There were some agonizing choices. You can find that on the Ringer MLB show feed. And you can keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. You're listening to our guest today, Will Johnson, singing for Dramatic. The song is "Calling Thermatico," which Will tells me was inspired by Barry Bonds' ascent and all of the suspicion and fallout that later surrounded his career. We will talk to you soon. Out
2: in the courtyard.